This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. And joining us in our studios is veteran Democratic Congressman Peter DeFazio from the state of Oregon. You are one of the preeminent experts when it comes to the War Powers Act. I want to get to your point of view in just a moment. But first, explain to our listeners how we reached this point back in 1972, 1973, during the height of the Vietnam War. Well, I've been in Congress a long time. I wasn't here then, but I know the history. Um, we had uh, Nixon's uh, secret uh, bombing of uh, Cambodia, uh, and uh, Congress uh, was outraged uh, at the action, the expansion of the war. And uh, there were, unfortunately, two competing versions of the War Powers Act. Uh, one uh, version said before the president commits troops into hostilities outside of the Constitution, that is repelling an immediate attack on the United States, its troops, its citizens, uh, that the president would have to come to Congress, consult, and get authorization. The second version said, no, the president can insert our troops into hostilities. He or she must report within 48 hours. And then if Congress uh, fails to authorize within 60 days, then uh, the action would end. Uh, so uh, that, unfortunately, is the version that was adopted. So it has been uh, used uh, or abused by virtually every president ever since, uh, you know, where they uh, engage. Then they come to Congress. Uh, they issue a report compliant with war powers. And once the shooting starts, Congress is uh, pretty likely to go along with it. And, of course, one of the significant aspects of the War Powers Resolution is that President Nixon vetoed it, Mm -hmm. and Congress had enough votes to overturn that veto. That doesn't happen that often. It was a huge bipartisan uh, majority that overturned uh, his veto in both the House and the Senate. Yes, absolutely. So it was uh, was a time of consensus when, when Congress was saying, wait a minute, we do have a Constitution. Uh, yeah, there's Article 2, but there's also Article 1. Don't forget Article 1. And uh, we are the ones with the authority to uh, declare war and put our troops into hostilities. And once we've authorized that, then, yes, you as commander-in-chief can uh, direct the activities. And going back even further, the intention of the founders when it came to the House and the Senate and its authority in declaring war, what was their intention? Well, they they said, you know, kings or, you know, leaders are want to have foreign adventures in order to increase support at home. Uh, So they wanted to uh, rein in uh, the presidency. They did not want the president to be a monarch, a king, uh, a dictator. uh, And they wanted to balance that. And so they said, well, let's let's say that, yes, uh, if we are engaged in conflict, we want to act with one voice. That is the commander in chief, the president. But. Congress has a say in whether or not we're going to engage uh, in those activities unless someone has attacked us or our troops or our citizens. You have been in Congress now for more than 30 years, and it's really been a bipartisan issue when you look at the role of the presidency. And specifically, I guess one example is Bosnia and Mm -hmm. Bill Clinton's use of military force in Bosnia. You were opposed to that. Explain Well, uh, the president, again, did not come to Congress to explain uh, his objectives, the scope. I mean, what War Power says is that the president would come to Congress, uh, explain uh, the expected scope of the activities, the objectives, uh, and the end game plan. Uh, And uh, then Congress uh, will say yay or nay. Uh, President Clinton engaged in that uh, without consulting with Congress. Uh, 
Uh, we've had, I think, every president since I've been here, uh, Ronald Reagan flagging uh, tankers and activities in the Persian Gulf, uh, you know, uh, Clinton, uh, Bosnia, and I believe there's one other instance. Uh, and then, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, we had, uh, uh, you know, Obama and Bush both, uh, you know, going beyond their authority. In the case of Obama, it was a little less direct, but it was uh, in support of taking out the dictator of Libya. And my legislation would cover that in the future and saying, no, no, you can't act directly into hostilities or indirectly support hostilities uh, by others. So from your standpoint, is the War Powers Act effective? Uh, no, because of the uh, the version that was adopted. That's why I've rewritten it. I worked many years ago with uh, Lawrence Tribe from Harvard uh, when I was a pretty junior member to uh, to rewrite uh, the War Powers Act to make it more effective. Uh, and uh, you know, we've evolved since then. I've introduced it numerous times. I've introduced it again in this Congress, and. It's very clear. Yes, there are the constitutional powers of the president that is repelling attacks, sudden attacks on U.S., imminent attacks. Uh, but uh, they haven't really made that case uh, for this most recent uh, you know, event for taking out uh, Suleiman. Uh, in fact, they are relying upon uh, artic- the uh, AUMF uh, from 2002. That is uh, – Bush's uh, worst foreign, foreign policy mistake in the history of the United States of America. That is the invasion of Iraq under the premise that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. So it seems to be just another example of the, the tensions inherent with our system between both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue, the executive and the legislative branch, when it comes to this issue. Yeah, and then ultimately, theoretically, those disputes would get resolved by the courts. Uh, but years ago, the courts uh, uh, in early litigation, I think over the uh, reflagging of the tankers in, in the Persian Gulf under Reagan, or about that time, they, they, they had a ruling saying this is a non-justicable uh, controversy, it's a, a political, uh, and that Congress has the power of the purse, and therefore uh, they could stop it if they wanted to stop the funding for the troops. Uh, so uh, my amended version of war powers would also give Congress standing to go to the courts if they uh, if they see that there's been a violation of war powers. Right now we can't do that. So again, if you had the ability to draft a war powers bill that suits your goals, mm-hmm. your objectives, it would include what? Well, I've, I have done that. Uh, it it better defines hostilities. Uh, it does say that uh, outside the constitutional powers that the president has to consult before engaging in hostilities, either direct or indirect, like taking care of the case of Libya with uh, with President Obama. Uh, it establishes a formal consultative group uh, within Congress. Uh, it uh, sets shorter timelines uh, uh, for – it still has the 48 hours reporting, but it also says uh, you know, that there's within 30 days the troops have to be uh, disengaged from hostilities absent uh, authorization uh, by the president. And it gives Congress standing when they feel that the president has violated uh, the law uh, and to, uh, to go to the courts. I went to the History Channel, and they pointed out that the last time Congress declared war was in 1942 against Romania. Of course, we were in the middle of World War II. And so my question is, we have the War Powers Act, but it seems as if since 1973, it's never fully been enforced. Well, to his credit, uh, George Bush uh, 
even though he committed the worst foreign policy mistake in the history of the United States of America by invading Iraq, he did come to Congress to get authorization uh, under war powers, and he was granted authorization under war powers uh, by the Congress. I voted against it, uh, but it, it passed, and, uh, and then uh, the war ensued. The worst foreign policy mistake in American history? Well, you know, the president, uh, the current president might one-up that. Uh, we'll see. Uh, today he was pretty restrained. Uh, we'll see where he goes with Iran. Engaging in an act of war with Iran would be a worse foreign policy mistake than uh, invading Iraq. But, yeah, we, we basically uh, created uh, the uh, Iran of today uh, by taking out their lifelong uh, enemy, Iraq, who, with whom they had fought numerous wars. And uh, taking out uh, Iraq, uh, you know, really started us down this path. And then, of course, President Trump accelerated it when he uh, ripped up the uh, the agreement uh, regarding uh, denuclearization of, of Iran, uh, saying it wasn't strong enough that someday in 15 years they could start developing uranium again. Well, uh, it didn't take 15 years after he ripped up the agreement for them to start enriching uranium again. Uh, and, uh, you know, the reason that we had the, uh, that agreement was because uh, we were worried about Iran having a nuclear weapon. Netanyahu was threatening to bomb them, except he didn't have the capability to get there. So he wanted us to provide air tankers and actually to do the bombing for him. Uh, and uh, our estimates were that there would be to effectively take out their you know, their nuclear uh, development facilities would incur tens of thousands of Iranian civilian casualties uh, because of where they're located. So uh, Obama did the right thing and negotiated it, and we moved them from being months away from a, a nuclear a weapon to years away from having a nuclear weapon, although now they've started enrichment again, but the inspectors are still there. And I'm sure you hear this from your constituents. There is a lot of mistrust in terms of this president, whether he is telling the truth regarding an imminent threat. But there's also a history of this mistrust, whether it's, as you mentioned, the war in Iraq and the, the, the deception by the George W. Bush administration, going back even further to Vietnam. So how does mm -hmm. this uh, sow the seeds of doubt in the American people, whether it's President Trump or a predecessor or a future president? Sure. Well, I remember the you know uh, President Johnson very well in the Gulf of Tonkin, uh, the hero from Oregon, Wayne Morse, senator, one of two to vote against the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, along with Ernest Grinning uh, from Alaska. Uh, you know, and uh, we have been uh, deceived into war by presidents of both uh, both parties, uh, and uh, you know that's why uh, I you know I feel very strongly about war powers and a strengthened version of war powers, so we don't keep repeating these mistakes and. Uh, killing both uh, Americans and uh, uh, others in these uh, in these uh, in these wars. We are talking with Democratic Congressman Peter DeFazio from Oregon, now in his seventeenth term. Yeah, it seems like just yesterday, but yeah, no, it's uh, it's been uh, extraordinary. I I never ever uh, could envision I would stay this long. Uh, uh, but uh, you know, I finally, after a thirty-two year apprenticeship, got to chair a. Uh, the Transportation Infrastructure Committee, so it was worth waiting around. How did somebody from Massachusetts end up on the other side of the country? Uh, I was uh, in ROTC and uh, graduated college uh, as an Air Force officer, and uh, they wanted me to specialize in intelligence, and 
Uh, they sent me to graduate school. They gave me four choices, and one of them happened to be Oregon. I'd never been there. I got there. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. So, Congressman, let me turn to the current debate and share with you what some of your colleagues in the Senate are saying. Let's begin with the Democratic Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia. If Congress debates the matter in full view of the public and reaches the conclusion that a war is necessary, so be it. Even if I were to vote no, if the majority of my colleagues voted yes, I would agree that the decision to go to war was a legitimate basis to order our best and brightest into harm's way. But by what right do we consign our troops to possible injury and death if we are unwilling to have a debate and cast a vote ourselves? We cannot hide under our desks, outsource our constitutional duty to any president, and pretend that we can avoid accountability for war and its consequences. From the Senate floor, Tim Kaine, and he's been very vocal on this. Uh, That's uh, a very powerful statement, and I would agree wholeheartedly with him. And I think part of the reason Congress way back then adopted the weaker version of war powers was what we call today plausible deniability. Okay, well, if the president does this, uh, they got to tell us about it after they do it, and then... You know, we can ride it for a while, and if it goes well, we can take credit. And if it goes poorly, well, then, you know, we've got 60 days and we can end it. Uh, so uh, that's why I want to strengthen war powers. And the other thing that I'm doing in strengthening war powers is to put a sunset clause in any future authorization. The 2002 authorization of use of military force was done on fake intelligence uh, made up by Scooter Libby uh, you know, Vice President Cheney about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And yet that is being used today as a rationale uh, for uh, this current action in Iraq, even though Iraq is now theoretically an ally of the United States of America instead of an enemy. So how would a sunset clause work? How would you enforce it? What kind of a timeline would you put in place? Uh, well, uh, you know, Congress would have uh, the discretion uh, but we would say that, uh, you know, the president would have to report every three months or six months and uh, uh, three months instead of six months on the ongoing hostilities. But we would set an end date, say, OK, you gave us because you have to come to the Congress and say, here's my objective. Uh, and this is what I expect in terms of the scope. Here's what I expect in terms of the duration. And here's uh, our exit or end strategy. Uh, and. Congress would then, uh, you know, with its discretion, say, okay, you think that'll take two years? We'll give you two years. And if at the end of two years uh, this is ongoing, you'll have to come back to us again. So here is the response to all of this from the Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, framing his argument that there needs to be national unity when it comes to military action. Let's listen. Can we not at least wait until we know the facts? Can we not maintain a shred? just a shred of national unity for five minutes, for five minutes before deepening the partisan trenches. Must Democrats' distaste for this president dominate every thought they express and every decision they make? Is that really the seriousness that this situation deserves? From the Senate floor, Republican Mm -hmm. leader Mitch McConnell. Congressman, your reaction? Well, uh, you know, both uh, President Bush uh, and uh, President, uh, I don't know about Clinton before that, but definitely President Bush and definitely President Obama uh, thought uh, 
and consulted with their subject matter experts on the Middle East uh, on the idea of taking out Suleiman. And they decided that uh, because of his status in Iraq, which at that point in Iran, which wasn't even as high as it is today or was, uh, that it would be uh, the consequences would be worse uh, than the uh, you know the the uh, positive results. So they decided not to do it. In this case, uh, where the news accounts say, I don't know if they're true, uh, that the Pentagon gave uh, the president a range of options after the contractor was killed, uh, and uh, he chose the you know the retaliation against the uh, irregular the, the Shia militias. And uh, they had put on one outlier. They gave him a range of options, and the Pentagon, according to leaked news reports, gave him what they considered to be the extreme option that no one would ever accept. Uh, and and to make anything else they proposed, and I don't know what those things were, look more reasonable. But they were more than just uh, the uh, actions against the Shia militia. Uh, and uh, after the president saw people attacking uh, the embassy. Uh, he apparently uh, just decided uh, impulsively to uh, to then uh, take out Suleiman. Iraq, Afghanistan, now tensions with Iran, trillions of dollars spent over the last 18 years, thousands of American lives. Is all of it worth it? Uh, well, we certainly uh, haven't uh, accomplished our goals. I, I believe, and I truly believe, if we had stayed the course in Afghanistan with massive support from our allies in NATO, first time, uh, that we'd had a joint action uh, with NATO of that magnitude. And, uh, you know, and uh, we had pursued uh, more effectively Osama bin Laden. Uh, remember that, you know, Rumsfeld uh, was using the the Afghan forces instead of U.S. forces uh, when he was in Tora Bora, uh, and, uh, and he got out the back door. Uh, it took years later for uh, you know for uh, the United States to to capture him in Pakistan, but I believe that we had an opportunity at that point in time to change the course uh, of Afghanistan. But when we abandoned Afghanistan uh, to invade Iraq, which is what Bush did, uh, then we started down this path of uh, going. But now we're now the U.S. is negotiating with the Taliban seriously and. Um, you know, and and Iraq uh, was going to be a, a shining light of democracy in the Middle East, and uh, Iraq is now uh, a client state of, uh, essentially a client state of Iran. You're a veteran, and what struck me with the attack of the Iranian general is that it was a drone strike. It was a, a covert operation. Is that what we're going to expect more of as somebody who understands the military in this 21st century? Well, we certainly don't want to put uh, troops uh, at risk unnecessarily. Uh, when and yet we, we are sending thousands more over Well, there. I know, I know. But what I'm saying is that, you know, if you used a manned plane, uh, you know, I mean, again, there are no air defenses in that area. But that, uh, you know, my understanding, I, I've seen confusing reports saying it was a helicopter or it was drones. And, you know, I haven't, uh, I'm not quite exactly certain what it was. Uh, you know who, what fired the Hellfire missile, whether it was a helicopter or uh, or a drone. But in any case, uh, you know that we saw that, uh, particularly starting with uh, President Obama, uh, started using drones in this way. And of course, the problem is, once we start using drones uh, that way, then other people may start 
uh, you know, we're sort of legitimizing the idea of, of uh, using drones. Uh, and when you, you know, when you use them inside another sovereign nation without their uh, authority, which is Iraq, uh, that's, uh, you know, that's really problematic. So how would you describe your views, generally speaking, with regard to the military? When do we use the military? When do we uh, avoid any military action? What is the responsibility of the U.S. and its armed forces from your standpoint, your ideology? Well, I voted. uh, There was only one dissenting vote after 9-11, and I helped shape uh, the uh, uh, 2001 authorization use of military force because the original submission— uh, by uh, by the Bush administration was we can go after anybody anywhere that we deem uh, you know uh, is a terrorist or had anything you know I mean it, it didn't have any relation to the actions of nine eleven and uh, I think at that point uh, uh, Nancy was the I think maybe she was our minority uh, whip or something I can't remember what position but I went to her and I said you know Nancy we've got to we've got to write this to be compliant with war powers. And we've got to do it in a way that it's much more limited than the open-ended thing they're asking for. And so we drafted it, and we had consensus, except for one dissenting vote. Barbara Lee voted uh, against it, uh, being against, I guess, uh, even retaliating against someone who slaughtered, uh, you know, thousands of Americans or at least the the war afterwards. Uh, but uh, so that was an, an appropriate action. Obviously, World War II was an appropriate action. Uh, so there are times when it's quite clear uh, that the military should be engaged. There's other times uh, when it's not so clear, and that's when the president should consult with Congress. Of course, our history with Iran really dates back over the last 40 years since the fall of the Shah and the, the taking of those 52 American hostages in November of 1979. But more recently, of course, you mentioned 9-11. Just as a sidebar, where were you on that day, and what were you thinking in terms of how it really has shaped U.S. foreign policy over the last two decades, nearly two decades. I was on the floor of the United States House of Representatives uh, giving a speech uh, on the uh, future of Social Security uh, as the first attack took place because I, I distinctly remember I finished and the clerk said, you're on the Transportation Committee. I said, yeah. She said, you might want to know a plane just crashed into the World Trade Towers. And I said, wow, that's... That's bizarre. I said, it's a crystal clear day here. What's going on in New York? And then, of course, by the time I get back to my office, uh, the second plane had hit. And then uh, and then while we were in the office, the other plane uh, hit the Pentagon. And, of course, we didn't know about uh, the plane that was taken down uh, by the uh, brave uh, uh, passengers uh, in Pennsylvania that was probably targeting the Capitol where I was giving the speech. So, uh, you know, that it, that was an extraordinary day. And again, we had national unity after that. And the world was with us. Even Iran was with us. They, they offered to send firefighters and people to help. Uh, so uh, everybody was with the U.S. and appalled at the slaughter of, of civilians and the use of commercial airliners with passengers on them to do this sort of a thing. Um, but, but we squandered that. Uh, with with the uh, war in Iraq. So where is all of this heading? And I'm going to take it on two different fronts. First, in terms of what happens next in Iran, but also what happens here in Washington and this debate over the War Powers Act. Well, uh, the you know we're actively uh, looking at uh, uh, 
something invoking war powers, uh, probably uh, since they're leaning on the 2002 AUMF uh, of revoking the 2002 authorization use of military force. Now, I don't. I I rarely vote for the uh, National Defense Authorization Act. I, I think there's massive ongoing waste of the Pentagon. I've been trying to audit them, uh, you know, for two decades now, and now you know we've finally tried to audit them, but they're unauditable. Uh, Why is that? <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, they just say that they can't account for things, and you know that we just should give them more money. Uh, you know, it's, it's and they're getting more money. Yeah, they are, and so but. But the original National Defense Authorization out of the House had uh, would end the authorization use of military force, uh, and it would have said that the president had to come to Congress uh, before uh, engaging in hostilities with Iran. And we had uh, Republicans, uh, some Republicans support that amendment back then. Uh, I'm hopeful that uh, if we draft something similar to what we did last summer, uh, that those uh, couple of dozen Republicans uh, will still be able to uh, stand up and say, no, uh, any further hostilities that aren't a reaction by an attack on us, uh, you know, has to be authorized by Congress. As you know, the War Powers Act is part of the debate here in Washington, D.C., but is it a national debate? Are you sensing that it will or could be an issue in this 2020 election year? Well, you know, I actually, uh, I've been recently, uh, I do town halls all the time, and I decided to start doing them a little differently than just answering random questions about subjects in D.C. and do some with themes. And I did some early last summer uh, when uh, when things were heating up uh, with, uh, with Iran uh, on the issue of war powers. And I had uh, quite a substantial turnout of people who were concerned about this. There's a, a lot of concern uh, by Americans about getting mired down in another war in the Middle East. And, and you know, potentially, I mean, if you remember what was going to happen in Iraq, according to Rumsfeld and Cheney and uh, I can't remember some of the other characters involved. They were going to pay for it. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was only going to take a short period of time and we would be welcomed by cheering crowds. Well, it didn't quite work out that way. Uh, so, uh, you know, there is an ongoing sensitivity among Americans. And, and President Trump ran on this, that he did not want to engage. He wanted to disengage uh, from endless wars. Uh, but I fear that he's now, uh, you know, potentially putting us on the path toward another. You have touched on a lot of themes, and I guess just to kind of recap, your your biggest concern in all of this, the path that we're heading, from your perspective, is what? Well, I'm not sure because the, the president did show, uh, I thought, uh, restraint today. I was very concerned about what he was going to do. Uh, after you know, he after he uh, initiated uh, the, uh, the assassination of Suleiman, uh, and then the, they uh, responded with rockets. Uh, but you know, the, the interesting thing, uh, they have you know he's backed them into a corner uh, with the maximum uh, economic sanctions and all the things he's doing, and that has made them act even less, you know, more irresponsibly than they have in the past. They're bad actors. I mean, they, you know, they sponsor terrorist groups everywhere. They're bad actors. Suleiman was a really rotten individual uh, with the blood of thousands on his hands. But, but uh, you know, you back someone into a corner and you're not quite sure what they're going to do. And in this case, 
you know, one of the things they did last summer was to, you know, shoot at a Saudi oil refinery, and they precisely targeted it. Uh, and these uh, bombs did not fall on the barracks or on the hangars or anything else. Uh, and you got to think that maybe they were they had to do something, but they didn't want to escalate. And the president today uh, didn't escalate. So I'm hopeful that maybe this is not going to escalate. Democratic Congressman Peter DeFazio from Oregon. By the way, you're running for re-election this year? Oh, uh, I yes. I declared early uh, the Republicans have recruited someone who they think is just going to be nifty if he can get through the, the primary. So and I, have a, <laughs> I have a swing district. It's very purple. It is one of the races we will be watching as part of our campaign 2020 coverage. Congressman, thank you for being with us. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate the opportunity. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app or wherever you download your favorite podcast, also on the web at cspan.org. We thank you for listening.